This is KOOP HD1 HD3 Hornsby. Welcome to the Austin Chronicle Show. My name is Kim Jones, and I am the editor of the Austin Chronicle, Austin's independent source of news and culture reporting since 1981. We have kind of an accidental theme today for this uh, this week's show, and that is passion projects. Later in the episode, we're going to be talking to our screens editor, Richard Whitaker, about a wild ride that a film from the 80s has been on. But before we get to that... We are going to talk to two people who are in the studio with us today. They are responsible for the cover story this week of the Austin Chronicle, and it is a proud history. It is the history of Austin Pride and 50 years of the LGBTQ movement in Austin. This has been a months-long project uh, on the part of these two people. And first up, we have Sarah Marloff, who is our community editor and associate news editor. Sarah, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Sure. And we also have Beth Sullivan, who is Special Screenings and Community Listings Editor, as well as a frequent contributor to the community section. Hi, Beth. Hey. Thank you both for being here. So I remember a few months ago, before the summer, y'all coming into my office and saying, okay, we have an idea. And it turned out to be a very big idea that has taken you months to produce. So why don't, Sarah, get us get us started. Yeah, um... Last year for the Pride issue, we did a piece on kind of how the queer community takes care of each other. And I was thinking as we were gearing up for the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, like, how do we top that? Like, that would have actually been so great for 50. And so I went to Beth and I was like, I don't know what to do. This is all I can think about right now. And she comes back with, what's Pride? Like, what's our history? And I was like, oh, I have no idea. And so it was totally Beth's brainstorm that led us down this like let's tell it let's find it out let's dig deep and let's look outside of like the normal box that does get told so frequently and like look at the greater swaths of the community Mm -hmm. so you're really trying to tell not just a monolithic this is the single gay experience in austin this is a million different kinds of groups that we're trying to that don't always get their story told um why don't you talk about sort of the, the the research process that you went in trying to tell these stories? Beth, do you want do you want to take this one? I know you spent an awful lot of time at the Austin History Center. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. I mean, it really started at the History Center. There was a thesis that we found from a UT Austin graduate student, and there were a lot of names in that from the early LGBTQ rights movement in Austin in the '70s and '80s. And from there, I was just reaching out to people if they knew somebody else, do you know so-and-so? I mean, it really was just like a spider web yeah. of research. And the the history that uh, which people can find at austinchronicle.com, um, we've got uh, a timeline. And the timeline starts before Stonewall. It starts in the yeah. 50s, right? Mm-hmm. And that is with the... The Manhattan Club, which was what we believe to be the first gay bar that opened in Austin in 1958. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And part of the part of the whole project that you have online, you also have what we're freely admitting is an incomplete list of all of the the gay, lesbian and queer bars that have operated at some point in Austin, which is 
really difficult to to nail down <laughs> all of the dates. And I mean, that that seems like that was a big part of the reporting process is just trying to get not only people's differing memories, but also a lot of people were not around anymore to talk to. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was really, I think even someone had posted the thesis we found online and someone had noted, which I cut from the story for space, but that when he was reading it, he realized how many of the men mentioned in the story had died from AIDS. And you, you know, when you're going back that far, I mean, also it was 50 years ago and to be politically awake and aware, you're probably older than 15. So you're, it's just hard to track down people and people move. Um, So it was really difficult to like find those stories. And then it was also difficult to find um, like, I came across a couple of people who weren't entirely comfortable with using their full names or wanting to get photographed or wanting to go on the record. And that from back in that day, too. And it's you think sometimes that like it goes that we're past that. But yeah, I mean, I think when I was doing a lot of the research for events that were happening like in the 70s and early 80s, a lot of the people that I interviewed are in their late 70s. One of the photographers that we found, she just turned um, 84, Robin Birdfeather. And so, yeah, part of it was just finding people who can still speak to that. Yeah. What, over the course of y'all's reporting over the last few months, what stuck out to you? What surprised you? What did you learn about the community that you didn't know about before? I don't know if I would say surprised. Um, I think we've both admitted to each other that we cried a lot while like mm-hmm. working on it separately. Um, I found some old stories written by an former Chronicle writer, um, Jordan Smith, uh, documenting some of the like sadder tales of like two different uh, trans women that were lost or trans, one trans woman and one like trans girl. I'm totally stealing best words here, but like this story is such like an uplifting and we focus on, it's pride. We're telling Mm -hmm. you the good stories. Um, But like there was a lot of hard stuff too. And so I think a lot of that, like just sitting with 50 years of queer history is a lot of history to sit with and to try to tell eloquently. Well, and, you know, we've we've mentioned the name of the section in the paper a few times now. Uh, and I think it sort of speaks to what you're talking about, just the, how many stories there are out there and how we are trying to tell as many of them as possible. The name of the section, um, which was rebranded under Sarah Marlos editorship, is Community, which sounds like community, but it's with a it's with a Q. For queer. Um, yes, for queer. Um, but that is the name that we gave it a year ago. Um, f- it was the gay place before that. Sarah, why don't you talk to us a little bit about what it was like to take? It was really an institution, yeah. the gay place, and and um, name it, it something else. Scary. Um, it was one of those things that, like, when I thought about, I thought about doing it a long time before I came to anyone and said I want to do it. My predecessor started Gay Place, and I like we owe so much of the story to her. Uh, that's Kate Messer. Yeah. Um, but finally, like as Beth was starting to write for me more and more, she was noting that like some people didn't feel comfortable being like written about in a section called the Gay Place because gay doesn't feel like it's a wide enough term for some folks, and definitely not for like a lot of the younger generation. And queer is a complicated word and it's definitely one that I gravitate towards but I didn't want to throw that at everybody as aggressively as I sometimes can um, and so I thought about saying like shorthand I write Q community all the time in the piece of being like I'm talking about the queer community I'm talking about all of us mm-hmm. and it just kind of felt right and 
Yeah, and under your stewardship, it's it's blown up from what was a column and occasional stories to really it's it's its whole it's it's its whole page on our website now, and we've got stories going up every single week. We've got listings, uh, basically anything that's important to the queer community. Yes, uh, you guys are on the ground there with it. Yeah. I also credit a lot of that to Beth, and I don't know if she would like to speak to it, but like having just another body who's not just there, but like passionate about it does a lot of help. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think we share that passion, and I think why it was really, to me, I mean, it felt really easy to write this piece together, and it was the first thing that we've ever co-written. It's the first thing I've ever co-written, ever, yeah. and it felt really effortless, and I think it's just we have that same passion. We also have worked together for a long time, but I think really the passion like took us through that. Mm-hmm. Did you guys find that you gravitated to different topics in this giant story? Yeah. <laughs> They're looking at each other right now. Okay. Let's yeah. use our words, guys. Yeah. Um, I think in the very beginning, I just wanted to know, like, what's, like, the really early stuff? Like, was there anything happening in the 60s or 70s? Um, and then, I don't know, maybe you had something else in mind. I, don't, I mean, I was just curious about everything. The first people we talked to were talking about much more recent stuff, which ended up being the stuff that I covered more in the story. Um, so I was like, cool, well, I can hold some of this down. And when you see someone who's like, I just want to go and I want to dig and I want to sit in the History Center and I want to talk, like, find these people, I was like, you go, girl. Like, can <laughs> she just, that, I think, again, that passion, like, really took her there. And I think I would have been happy on any of the beats in that set in the story. And so I feel like it was just happened pretty naturally of like, oh, you're going to cover this and I'm going to cover this. Mm-hmm. So. And we really should do a big, big shout out to the Austin History Center where Beth has been spending half of the summer. Yeah. Um, and they've done some interesting things over there with their LGBTQ collection. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So within, I think, the last five years, they've come out with an LGBTQ resource guide, which is their finding guide where they've gone through all of their collections, finding documents and photographs relevant to Austin's LGBTQ community. Um, And it's really an incredible resource. It definitely guided me through a lot of the reporting with this piece. And it's something that, from my understanding, they're still like really trying to build it up and find as many people who have something that they might want to donate to the collection. Right, like over the course of the story, you encountered a photographer, right, who wants to now donate materials she's not a photographer ah. but she had a lot of photographs okay um and i think some other items as well that she was inspired to donate to the center after our conversations and that donation is happening right now so they're going through that that's great mm-hmm. and i'm sure if if people want to donate to their materials to the history center i'm sure you can find on their website it really is an extraordinary you know it is our city's archive mm-hmm. it's so cool in there like it's just like a really awesome place to nerd out I feel like Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely so it is pride in Austin uh this weekend yeah well it's been going on actually for a few days now right right, including an event that we had this week uh at the Blanton that you guys hosted uh and that was that was uh one of the reasons we partnered with the Blanton was because there's an exhibit there right now yes uh the Jeffrey Gibson exhibit this is the day I don't even know exactly what to say about him, but his art is very visual, very amazing. Um, it's he's Native American and queer, and he's like combining like his heritage with like his queerness with like pop culture, and it's 
just a beautiful like use of words and I didn't get to spend as much time as I wanted in there but I could have spent like four hours in that oh. exhibit so uh the chronicle is going to be at pride as we as we usually are uh, yep. you guys are going to be uh doing a parade do, sorry doing a float on the parade mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. what is what is the theme of the float this year um, it is the Hollywood, a.k.a. the Holly Weird, which was a popular lesbian bar in Austin in the 70s through the 80s. It was very infamous for having a topless DJ, DJ <laughs> Julie. So we were inspired by that. Yeah, that sounds really fun. The theme this year for Pride is Boogie Wonderland. So we were like, well, if we're going to go with the 70s, let's really let's, go with the 70s. Really do it. Yeah. And this is, uh, you know, I think... The end of your story is really looking at sort of, okay, we've been through everything up until this point. What is what is the future of Pride? And more broadly, what is the sort of the future of LGBTQ community? Um, And there are some new things happening this year. There are. I'm super excited for it. Um, Aside from Saturday's festival and parade for Austin Pride, after the parade at Cheer Up Charlie's, um, DJ Girlfriend is hosting the first ever Trans Pride in Austin. And the following day, also starting at Cheer Up Charlie's, um, Beth Schindler and Anita Obasi are hosting the return of Austin's Dyke March, which is like historically a more political march for that's very all encompassing. Everyone's invited, but it's kind of about getting back into the streets and reclaiming some space. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there is a lot to look forward to, and there's also just a lot to look back at. And you can find y'all's incredible uh, packet, your your cover story, and their sidebars, and it's just it's it's really it's really something spectacular. I'm really proud of you guys, and you should feel great about it. Well, it sounds like we have a lot to look forward to this weekend, and we also have a lot to look back at. So thank you guys for coming in. And if you want to know more about this massive project that Sarah and Beth have been working on all summer, you can find it at austinchronicle.com forward slash Q. Thanks so much for coming in, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, We will be back after just a few announcements. Stick around. Welcome back to the Austin Chronicle Show. We're here in the studios of Co-op Community Radio at 91.7 FM in Austin and live streaming through coop.org. I'm your host, Kim Jones, editor of the Austin Chronicle. With me now is Screens editor Richard Whitaker, here to talk about the re-release of a lost film from the 80s, a really trippy art house film starring Bill Paxton called Taking Tiger Mountain that now is lived an entirely new life or I did it's a wild story and Richard it, you're going to tell us all about it. it in fact it's a film from the 70s and 80s because this this is a story uh that kind of sometimes these things fall across your desk and you're like you start falling down a rabbit hole with them uh and this is a story that involves um Bill Paxton Bob Fosse William S Burroughs um <laughs> uh the Austin music scene in the early 80s just Everything falls into this because it's such a wild, weird story. Oh, and naked Welsh hippies. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, and for those of you who don't know who Bill Paxton is, um, he was one of the great supporting actors. You've you've seen him in so many things, but you probably best know him from he's the guy who's uh, running the submarine mission in that's the framing mechanism in Titanic. Mm-hmm. But he was in Twister. Um, he was in a lot of James Cameron's films as, uh, generally because James Cameron really liked him. Mm-hmm. He plays the Catherine sleazy Bigelow too, right? Catherine Bigelow. Yeah. Where they, they were they were good. He was good friends. Everybody I know who ever worked with him said he was one of the nicest guys. I had the pleasure of meeting him once. He died early. He died in uh, 2017. Mm-hmm. Uh, out of nowhere but he was everybody knows him as kind of this great quirky character actor but he also had this weird avant-garde streak um he was in a new wave band he made the video for if you ever seen fish heads the the famous no, terrible song he did the video for that he was this weird guy who everybody knew was like this you know he, he played the best friend but at the same time he had all this other stuff going on uh he also made frailty which uh is an amazing southern gothic film he was about to do an adaptation of joe lansdale's the bottoms mm-hmm. uh right. he, i think a lot of people don't know that he he had a whole career as a writer director yeah. in addition to being this guy who led you know twister one of the biggest Action movies of the, what was it, 90s? 90s, yeah. yeah. But the story of Taking Tiger Mountain goes right back to his early days. And it's such a, it, it kind of bounces through Austin in weird tangential ways that he knew a guy called Tom Huckabee. Um, he, you know, Bill Paxton, who was from Fort Worth, was 19. He was at Richmond College in the UK taking some college credits. Tom Huckabee was there. He was a high school kid taking high school hours. And Bill Paxton, you know, they got to know each other. And a couple of years later, they met back up and, and they said, well, and Tom said, well, what have you been doing? And he went, well, I kind of went to Tangiers to make this weird indie movie based on the um, the John Paul Getty uh, kidnapping. Mm-hmm. And it kind of fell apart and we got deported. And well, they got the, arrested first. Yeah, they got right? arrested, yeah. deported, <laughs> sent to Gibraltar. Um, then went to Wales, where he, where Bill Paxton knew some hippies, and they shot ten hours of silent footage um, on outtakes from Bob Fosse, a uh, 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 bin end footage from Bob Fosse's uh, Lenny Bruce biopic, and then then never completed the film. And years later, when Tom Huckabee was graduating from UT um, School of uh, Radio, Television, and Film. He managed to buy the footage and turn it into a film called Taking Tiger Mountain, which is this just drags in so many amazing influences. William S. Burroughs was in there and they actually were the it was the first film to use to give William S. Burroughs a credit as a writer. This is Naked Lunch author. Yeah, the, na- the Naked yeah, Lunch. Huge uh, the Red the you know, City of the Red Knight, Queer, just an incredible pivotal uh, f- uh, writer, but at that point, nobody cared about him, and he sold them the rights to his short story, Blade Runner, brackets, a movie, which is different to Blade Runner, the movie. <laughs> Again, this is a weird story that, <laughs> that I lay out at length in this week's issue. And everything about this was insane. It's one of these moments where I think for people looking back at the history of Austin in the 80s, which is almost kind of this... this it's almost a missing period in some ways because everybody remembers kind of the the seventy the sixties and seventies and the cosmic cowboy era, and then the nineties when Austin starts to become much more clearly defined as a cultural city. 
the eighties are still in some ways kind of this weird period, particularly for filmmakers that nobody remembers. And there's the birth of cut up culture and new wave is sliding into industrial. And what was the film business doing? And what were filmmakers doing at this time? And this film is such a strange beast and it disappeared for basically mm -hmm. 30 years. And then a couple of years ago, Tom Huckabee managed to get the rights back and completely rebuilt it yet again. Mm -hmm. This film has been remade, remixed, re-engineered, and he's done it as a tribute to Bill Paxton uh, because people don't know about him as an avant-garde film sure. artist. Well, and Tom Huckabee has freely admitted that sort of the first go at this film was not hugely successful. <laughs> well, it, it doesn't help that you get a uh, you get a distribution deal, and then a week in the distribution company goes belly up taking the film with it. Yeah, <laughs> but it was a, a kind of it's a difficult, weird, uh, sexually graphic. <laughs> film that you will see if, if you manage to find this because it's currently on blu-ray from vinegar syndrome uh who are a restoration house uh you will see a lot more of bill paxton than you ever thought you were going to see <laughs> both as an artistic force and just very very literally uh he is on full display um because this was very much of its time and sure. <laughs> this is a, a tiny indie art house film but this thing tanked at the time, um, and they were pursued by terrible reviews from people who didn't get it. And one of the reasons that Tom Huckabee wanted to bring it back was to make it the film that he knew it could be, which from a in a film with a history of being remixed and remade and restructured and re-engineered kind of makes all the sense in the world. Uh, I asked him how he felt about it now, and he said, well, when I made it originally, it was a two-and-a-half-star film. I think it's three-and-a-half now. <laughs> Which is kind and self-critical at the same time. Sure. So what what changed in the intervening years? Like, I don't know if you've seen both cuts of the film. Do you know what? It's it's very odd what has changed. A lot of it is about just simple restructuring. It's tighter. Um, he added a few effects in. There's a lot of uh, cleaning up of the audio because the audio was pretty rough. A lot of stuff that I think uh, real film wonks will go into and go, oh, yeah, well, you know, you can see how much quicker they make the edit there or, you mm -hmm. know, he, the image has been cleared up or this has been remastered. Um, but one of the major things is, if you do see it, stick around to the end um, because he shot one additional piece of footage uh, after Bill Paxton's death that is a very much a tribute to Bill Paxton. And it's totally very different to the rest of the film visually completely different but it's there's something very sweet and it's a metaphor for bill paxton's legacy as this weird outsider artist who touched a lot of people's lives as generally regarded as one of the nicest people in hollywood one of the hardest working people in hollywood and it's just this you know i think tom that's what meant most to him he could put this little coder on that really speaks to his friend. And they were friends. I mean, they stayed working, even though Taking Tiger Mountain, which has now been retitled, they even retitled it. It's now mm -hmm. Taking Tiger Mountain Revisited. That he got an opportunity to pay tribute to one of the greats of Texas cinema. And a guy who I think most people don't appreciate what it was he was capable of. And now they can. Now they can see, like, here's this aspect of him that you never really got to see. And if you've never seen Frailty... Uh, which was his directorial debut, you have to see it. Mm -hmm. it's, so it's, it's Matthew McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey, sorry. an amazing work of, of Southern Gothic that, y again, you'll just see this aspect of 
the guy that gets punched out by Arnold Schwarzenegger in the original Terminator, <laughs> it's an aspect of him you've never seen before, and it's so worth hunting down. Mm-hmm. What any other favorite Bill Paxton performances from over the year? Um, well, I, I can actually, I actually got to interview him a few years ago when he was inducted into the Texas Film Hall of Fame. And I asked him what the single work of his that he was most proud of was. And he took a second and he went, the greatest game ever played. And I went, your golf movie? <laughs> and he went, yes, huh? my golf movie. That is the, it's uh, a Shia LaBeouf, Shia, right? A very young okay. Shia LaBeouf. Um, in a uh, in a historical drama about the first American to win one of the major golfing tournaments, and it's got so much tied up in it because uh, not least because Bill Paxton had a very personal involvement with it because he actually put himself through college as a golf caddy. Um, but this 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 amazing small story and it's told in ways that you don't expect and he brings some visual aspects that you're not going to see in a normal golf movie which tend to be very flat and it's like lots of green stuff and this really is a, a social commentary film and uh, I talked to Tom Huckabee about this and he said yeah this shows you how dedicated Bill was to telling his stories that he submitted the uh, uh, the final version of the film or his final version of the film to the studio and they sent back one note and Bill Paxton lost his mind about this and was furious about mm. this. And his producer had to go, I've literally never seen a film get one note. <laughs> this is as close to perfect as a mm-hmm. film is ever going to get. Uh, and that was, you know, and he kind of sat down and went, yeah, okay, that, that one note makes sense. But he was, he was a dedicated artist that I think people kind of look back on and go, he was just a, a funny character actor and there's so much more to his cinematic legacy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we have only scratched the surface really here about sort of the weird twists and turns of this movie. Uh, find the story online because we've got the trailer and it will give you a taste for how, how avant-garde it is. So Richard, thank you so much for coming and talking to us. Absolutely, my pleasure. So that is going to do it for us today. You can read more about the two stories that we talked about today on our website at austinchronicle.com and in the print issue, which is on stands now. So I want to say thank you to my guests, Sarah Marloff, Beth Sullivan, and Richard Whitaker. Uh, Thanks to our engineer, Evan Hurd, and our gracious hosts at Co-op Radio. And thanks to Kevin Curtin and Jonas Wilson for writing our theme music. We will see you next week, same time, same place, for another edition of the Austin Chronicle Show.